We are picking up, as you can see on the schedule, we have added several weeks to our Forgive class. Um, so we, you know, if you're reading along, you have plenty of time to catch up to us um, or just pick up where, where we are. So if you're wanting to read Keller's book, I would highly encourage that. I think he, he's done a great job here. Um, we've started each class by reciting the Lord's Prayer together. That's on your handout, so I would, I'd recommend looking at that, or you could pull it up in, in your Bible as well. Uh, though, of course, if you have a different translation than the Christian Standard Bible, you'll, you'll be reading something different, and you'll need to look at the Christian Standard Bible's uh, footnote for the little added line. But let's say this together. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Implied there is the command to forgive, isn't it? Forgive us our debts or forgive those who have sinned against us or trespassed against us. Forgive us our debtors. Uh, forgive us as we, we forgive. So um, let's pick up here. Last week I did not manage time well, and I apologize for that. If, you're, if there's content holes that you're missing, look at those notes, and if you need the notes, I'll be happy to supply them for you. But um, in the previous lesson, we grounded our understanding of forgiveness in the character of God. God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. At the same time, he will not leave the guilty unpunished. That paradox of mercy and justice come into clear focus in Jesus on the cross, uh, where, where God takes punishment on himself in order to offer us forgiveness. God's concern for mercy and justice together flowing from his character, provides the foundation for our understanding of forgiveness. More than that, our practice of forgiveness takes shape in the teaching of Jesus. So if we understand we have to have a concern for mercy and justice, and we ought to forgive because God is forgiving, our practice then is formed through Jesus's teaching. He goes beyond um, what we might think of as just the very basics of forgiving somebody we love to then instructing us to love our enemies. So that, that's what we're considering this morning. But let's begin by looking at Jesus's two forgiveness directives that appear contradictory. Um, so sometimes Jesus says things in one place and he'll say something else at another time and it seems like he's contradicting what he's saying. This happens a lot, and we just have to have a category for the reality that Jesus is speaking into certain situations, and what he says in that certain situation might not apply in every other situation. Um, so we could probably come up with a lot of examples for this, but often if, you, if you're telling your kid to do something in one instance, you might not want them to do that thing all the time. Or there might be another situation that comes up and you're like, man, if my kid would just use common sense, they would know to, to adjust. You know, so if um, you told your kid, hey, you need to have the trash cans around front by 7.30 in the morning. And your kid is out there 
you know, I don't know, maybe your kid gets up early to drink tea and read, and at 6.30, he notices the, the uh, garbage man coming. Well, your instruction to get the cans out by 7 doesn't mean don't pay attention to other contextual factors. That might mean you need to get the garbage cans out by 6.15 if you see the garbage guy coming. You know, when we give instruction, they're always within a context, and changes to context need to allow us to be flexible and creative, okay? That's, that's how we do ethics, basically. Um, but they appear contradictory, and we need to work through that. Directive number one is to forgive immediately, without qualification. In Mark eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus taught, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. His basic point is that if you realize you have not forgiven someone, just do it right away. That's the basic teaching of Jesus. You'll notice throughout your notes there are smaller font sections. Those are things that are not in Keller's book, and I was reflecting and wanted to distinguish it from what he's saying so you don't get them confused. Um, But I think he says if you realize when you stand praying that you have something against somebody, forgive him. Well, sometimes the way that we realize we, we have something against somebody we need, that we need to forgive them is that we're angry at them or that we've been hurt emotionally by them. But those aren't the only two emotions or re- ways of relating that indicate that a relationship is broken. So, for example, if you feel numb towards somebody or if you're completely disinterested in them when previously you had a relationship, you know, I I think these are signals that there's reconciliation that needs to be pursued or forgiveness that needs to be offered. Younger people, you know, I'm talking like people five years older than me and younger, have a habit of what's called ghosting somebody where someone offends them and they write them out of their life without saying a word. And it's not like they're acting out angrily and it's not like they're harboring hurt They just adopt a posture of numbness and indifference to that person such that their relationship is effectively cut off. They've ghosted them. And I think that's the natural inclination for most people that I know. I'd say even older people that I know, they just do it in a different way. I think older people do the same thing. They're just maybe more friendly about it. Like they'll still smile at you and shake your hand and act like nothing happened. But I think when we heart, when there's a sort of numbness or a disconnectedness from other people that we used to be connected to, that also is a good indication of a need to forgive. Now, when Jesus says to forgive, no qualification right there, you realize that you have something against someone, you haven't forgiven them, You just need to forgive them. That text could easily be misunderstood as a confirmation of the cheap grace model forgiveness that simply entails forgiving, forgetting, and moving on, pretending as if it didn't happen. It's like the Christianese way of ghosting somebody. That's not what's going on here. Uh, It's it's not simply a matter of just getting over the, the offense regardless of how the other person handles it. We'll return to that concept in a moment. But what must be recognized is that forgiveness is commanded. And that while forgiveness is not simply a one-time event, forgiveness must be initiated at some point. So hopefully you're realizing throughout this class that forgiveness is not a punctiliar one-moment-in-time thing. 
like you checked the forgiveness box and now you're done. It's all forgiven. We have to adopt a posture of perpetual forgiveness. But forgiveness actually has to start at a point in time. You have to make a decision to forgive. Um, Tim Keller in a interview I listened to this morning said, forgiveness is a promise that you make and then you have to keep that promise. So you have to keep on keeping your promises. They, they don't get fulfilled in a moment in time. The initial moment to forgive is not predicated on being ready to forgive or on ha having an emotional disposition that makes forgiving easier. Have you ever said to someone, I'm just not ready to forgive them yet? Or have you heard someone say that? I'm, I'm not ready to forgive them yet. That is a violation of the command that Jesus issues here. Our forgiveness is not predicated on being ready to forgive. Now, at the same time, I want to suggest that you have to distinguish between forgiving somebody and dealing with the hurt that was caused by the offense. Um, especially in cases of abuse, there, there are things that happen to people's brains and to their lives that have ongoing ramifications. And forgiveness doesn't erase that. It doesn't get rid of it. So when, when I'm saying you, you need to forgive, that doesn't mean that everything's taken care of. But it does change your internal posture towards that person. Now it's one where you no longer will their harm or you harbor the offense, but instead you move toward them with toward reconciliation. I'll talk about that in a moment. But you will their good instead of their harm. You want them to flourish and you want what's good for them. That forgiveness is possible because God has already moved toward us with forgiveness. Um, in the small text there, ben, ben went to go pick up his kids to bring them to church. This was for Ben because he's philosopher guy. I won't read it, but if you also are philosophy guy or woman, you can read that small text in the connection to um, some of the apologetic arguments for God as the first cause and first mover. But the point is that every movement we make in forgiveness, whenever we see something existing, we wonder, well, where did that thing come from? Every time a Christian moves towards someone in forgiveness, particularly in a context where it doesn't seem like it makes sense, it acts as a witness to the first movement of forgiveness that was offered to us by God in Christ. Significantly, Jesus places the realization of a failure to forgive within the context of praying. It's during the act of praying, approaching the throne room of grace, that Christians are reminded that their offenses against God have been forgiven through Christ, granting them access to their loving and forgiving Father. It's that realization that cultivates the humility that sees yourself as equally deserving of condemnation and the joy of knowing your standing in Christ's love. That dual realization makes it possible to give up your desire for revenge. Full participation in that grace requires forgiving the offenses of others. Because as soon as, I mean, think about this. As soon as you're praying to God, particularly if you're asking God to forgive you of something, how can you not read yourself into this story of the unforgiving servant who's before the king asking to be forgiven of his debt who then fails to forgive those who have sinned against him. Um, the Bible gives us stories to live by. That's a story we live by. And if you're not living by that story when you go to God in prayer asking him to forgive you, you need to. Get that story into your bones. Get it into your heart so that anytime you encounter God's 
forgiveness and grace, it becomes an occasion for you to remember to grant forgiveness and grace to other people. I'd say every spiritual discipline is like this, but especially the Lord's Supper. When we come to the Lord's Supper, this is a meal. We sing, we sing these lines, I think, in Jesus, thank you. It's, it's really good. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Well, anytime we come to the Lord's Supper, we should think about the people who we are counting as full-on enemies or low-grade enemies, uh, frenemies maybe. And we should think, I was an enemy, now I'm seated at the table of Christ as a friend. Um, and take that as an occasion to consider how the people who you are failing to forgive can be brought into your friendship, maybe even literally to your dinner table as you share time with them and pursue reconciliation. Jesus then adds a confusing line, forgive so that your Father in heaven will also forgive your wrongdoing. We've already considered this at length in previous lessons, but as Keller says, we should remember that this cannot mean that God's forgiveness is merited by ours. Rather, it means that to be unforgiving reveals that you have failed to understand and accept God's unmerited grace yourself. So he's not saying by forgiving someone else, you're earning God's forgiveness, but you're more fully participating in it, and you're showing that you've more fully participated in God's forgiveness. All right, before I move on, any questions or follow-up on that first directive? Tim. So uh, we've talked about this a little bit, table it or, or push it off to a further discussion, but you know, so, so what you're talking about when you forgive is you're, you're forgiving them and you're releasing them so that you can be part of restoring them So then at that point, you, what, do you pray for them? Or do you pray that the Lord would change their heart? Probably, yeah, right? Yeah, so I, I think you're on the right track. Tim is asking, okay, so you've forgiven somebody. Maybe they're not repentant. You're still dealing with the hurt. What does forgiveness look like? That, that's a good question, and that's a lot of what, what forgiveness is. We'll get to some of that later in the lesson. But for now, I'd want to say that when you commit to forgive somebody and they refuse, they don't want to reconcile with you, uh, there are different contexts where sometimes you just open-handedly let that, let that person go. Um, we have greater responsibility in some contexts than others. Um, if it's someone in your church, you have a greater responsibility to them than you do someone who you went to high school with who lives in another state. You know, So we have to factor some of those things in. But I think at the end of the day, when it comes to forgiving someone who doesn't want a relationship with you, I don't know that you need to keep praying for them to repent. I think part of forgiveness is releasing them to God, trusting God with them, and instead praying for God to heal your hurt. So instead of harboring that hurt, so when your anger flares up when you just, when something triggers it and you happen to think about that thing, it's not that you stop and pray for them to be repentant, but you, you suffocate the anger and you pray for God's spirit to heal you. Does that make sense? So I'm not saying there's never a place to keep praying for somebody to repent, but I, you know, um, I can think of one particular marriage situation where one spouse just refused to reconcile, refused to repent, was abusive, and, and in that separation, the other spouse was almost so concerned in praying for this person's repentance that you can almost um, fail to work through your own issues and you can fail to distinguish between 
the motivation of their good, and that's why you're praying for their repentance, and your motivation of judgmentalism, and I'm perfect, and I'm perfectly in the right, and they have to repent. We'll, we'll talk about that later, but I'd say it's all case by case, and talk to pastors and other people who can help you think through it. The second directive is to confront, and then conditional on that person's repentance, you can forgive. So this is where the contradiction appears to come in. In Luke 17, 3 through 4, Jesus teaches, be on your guard. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him or confront him. And if he repents, forgive him. Do you see the conditional if? So you might, if, if you read Luke's gospel first and whether it's an accident of history or more divinely superintended, Matthew comes first in the canonical order, so you wouldn't, you wouldn't do that probably. But if you did, you might think, I'm only obligated to forgive somebody if they repent. Um, but then Jesus goes further. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So Jesus is advocating for a a demeanor of forgiveness, a perpetual orientation to forgive, even when somebody keeps offending. Now, um, one second. This this text, again, I'm, I'm trying to say, has to be put into place with the rest of Jesus's teaching. And uh, we'll get to some of that in a moment. But I've heard this text misused it, uh, by people who are harming other people and then requiring the person they harm to relate to them as if it never happened. That's not what Jesus is saying. Go ahead. Yeah, that's a good question. Was Jesus saying, Father, forgive them right now, or was he saying, if they repent? Later in the class, we're going to get to a distinction between internal and external forgiveness, with internal forgiveness being possible regardless of repentance, external forgiveness we might call it reconciliation, not being possible apart from a change on the part of the offender. And I want to say that Jesus, you know, I, I, I'm hesitantly saying something here because I need to work through the way I'd state this theologically, but I, I think I want to say that God, because of Jesus's death on the cross, and because Jesus bore the full wrath of God, God has forgiven the world. But for people to participate in that forgiveness and to receive the benefits of a reconciled relationship with God, they must repent. So I'd say that God is a forgiving God. And um, the kinds of things that Ezekiel pointed forward to when he said that God takes no delight in punishing the wicked, it sort of affirms that. So I'd, I'd say God is forgiving. And, and that's why I think you can tell every unbeliever, God loves you. God, God wants you to enter into a relationship with him because he's forgiven you. And in fact, you know, this is a little bit maybe beyond what you're looking for. In all of ancient uh, literature, and uh, there's, there's one verb in the Greek New Testament where God actively takes the initial initiation to reconcile himself. So I think 2 Corinthians 5, maybe 2 Corinthians 5.14. I, I don't have a great memory for that. But God is the only God in all of ancient history who moves towards someone in reconciliation. Everyone else makes sacrifices to the gods and hope they respond. But God is forgiving, as, as we've seen.
Does that answer it at all? Okay, we'll see if by the end of the class, if not, I'd say, God, yes, God, I think Jesus is appealing for God to forgive them at that moment on the basis of his sacrificial atoning death. Again, I need to figure out how I'd want to say that most accurately theologically, but I'd say that uh, God is, has forgiven humanity in Christ. We must repent to participate in that. All right. Um, Keller identifies two responsibilities that Jesus gives. First, if someone sins against you, rebuke them. Now, of course, we're not to correct every sin we see someone committing. And Jesus is particularly talking about when someone sins against you. And in those instances, you're to confront them. Or I like the language of the New Living Translation in Leviticus 19, 17, where it says, speak frankly with your neighbor. Don't beat around the bush. Say, hey, you did this and that offended me. Just talk with them. Um, so Jesus is saying that you have a responsibility to talk to the person who's offended you. This, I think, goes untapped. This is a resource that Jesus gives us. How many times have you heard someone complain? Maybe you've done this, I've done this. You've heard someone complain about somebody who hurt them. And you ask them, well, have you talked to them about this? They say, oh, no, of course not. I'd never do that. Jesus gives us the resource of reconciliation that starts with actually speaking frankly with somebody about what happened. Those can be painful conversations, and it can be awkward to bring it up, but that's where healing really begins in a relationship because that's often where understanding begins. I think most of the time people who are walking around angry at someone, the person that they're angry at doesn't even realize they did something wrong. Um, when I worked on staff at Eden, um, I, when I started working in the office, there's one staff member there who can be particularly blunt and straightforward. And I, I felt pretty hurt by something that he had said like early on when I was working there. I just didn't say anything about it for months. And um, I was waiting for like 90 day review of my progress and maybe I'd bring it up, that never happened. Eventually I, like he and I were out doing a project together and I mentioned it. He had no recollection of that event. So something that I had been harboring for months, he didn't even know about. So when we fail to speak frankly with somebody about what's occurred, we're often hurting ourselves and, and we're not solving the problem. And, you know, beneficially, I think that the conversation I had with him, because he is such a open to correction kind of a guy, I think me saying something helped him realize where he had done something similar to other people. Well, do you see how you can love that person by speaking openly with them? Of course, humility is needed. While we should sp speak frankly, we need to pursue clarity and understanding. A lot of the grudges we bear against somebody or the offenses we feel um, are a result of a misunderstanding, or maybe they're even simply imagined. Or maybe, honestly, you're just being oversensitive in the way you're relating to that person. What is more, we often fail to recognize the part that we've played in generating the broken relationship. So sometimes I hear Jesus saying, when someone sins against you, confront them. And we go to do that without ever taking stock of what we've brought to the table. Um, 
you, you have to go with humility and a measure of self-evaluation and the kind of openness such that if, if when you confront the person and they point out your role in the problem, that you are immediately willing to repent, that you're willing to do what you're expecting that other person to do when you're talking with them. That's hard, um, but necessary. And along the way, you know, recalling lesson number one, not excusing it. So, so um, not saying, oh, it's not a big deal, or not allowing them to excuse it when they're like, oh, well, I only did that because you did this first. Say, oh, well, never mind, it's not a big deal. Don't excuse it. Fess up, repent, and then pursue reconciliation. Um, sometimes it's hard to know when you need to confront somebody. You know, there's a better part of wisdom that sometimes says you can forgive someone without ever bringing it up. Uh, and we have to especially avoid weaponizing uh, forgiveness. So um, you should never go up to somebody and say, you know what, for years I've just hated you because of the tone of your voice. And I know everyone else hates your voice and I just need to be more loving and gracious and forgiving to you. So I forgive you for having the annoying voice that you have. Don't do that. You know, that's a silly example because we need to have a little bit of humor. But sometimes we do that to people where we offer forgiveness and it's actually just an accusation of them. And it does not, it's not willing their good at all. And, and we need to avoid that. It's really easy to do that. Um, so how do you know when you should confront somebody? I'd point you to a book by Ken Sandy called The Peacemaker. He has an appendix that's really good where he offers some guiding questions to discern whether or not you should overlook someone's sin or overlook an offense. Um, and even that you need to weigh carefully and, and take the aggregated answer to those questions. It's not like, oh, just one box is checked. Let me go confront this person. Uh, you have to be a little bit more cautious. Second, if they repent, so you have a responsibility to speak with them about the issue. And then if they repent, you have a responsibility to forgive. Both responsibilities are incumbent upon us. Um, some of us are more inclined to confront. Others are more inclined to overlook something, but both confrontation and forgiveness are necessary parts of the equation. And both of them ought to have as an aim the reconciliation of the relationship, not just getting something off our chest. All right, any questions on that one before we work to bring those two things? Just forgive on the spot, and if they repent, then forgive. Before we bring those into harmony, any, anything you want to chase? Okay, if, as I've been saying, if Luke 17 is read apart from Mark 11, it might be possible to conclude that no forgiveness is necessary until there's full repentance and restitution by the offender. Uh, but Mark 11:25's requirement of immediate forgiveness precludes that. On the other hand, if Mark 11 is read in isolation from Luke 17, one might conclude that forgiveness is something that happens completely in one's heart and can be completed in an instant, regardless of whether the offending party repents. So what's the solution? The answer is that forgiveness can have two meanings that overlap. Sometimes the forgiveness of which the New Testament speaks presupposes repentance on the part of the offender, and sometimes it doesn't. So here I want to talk about inward and outward forgiveness and how we can distinguish between the two in a meaningful way. Um, there are not two kinds of forgiveness. 
That's not what I'm saying. Instead, I think I'm trying to say, and what I think really what Keller is saying, is that there are two aspects or stages of forgiveness. And one could say that the first stage, inward forgiveness, must always happen. And the second stage, outward forgiveness, may happen, but is not always possible. All right, so you have to track carefully with this so you can um, hear, hear everything that he's saying. But I just want to push you, if you have a really uh, two-dimensional view of forgiveness, if you don't see forgiveness more in a more nuanced way, you're going to struggle with this. You have to open yourself up to seeing forgiveness maybe a little bit differently than you're used to. Um, I've left a note there. There's a lady named Maisha Cherry who wrote a book called Failures of Forgiveness, What We Get Wrong and How to Do Better. Um, she's an ethical philosopher. I think ultimately what she offers is not convincing, but she does do a good job at pointing out the failures of the, the bad models of forgiveness that we've seen in this class. And uh, she points out how we need to be a little bit more thoughtful about how we talk about forgiveness. So if you're interested in that, I'd point you to her work. Um, Jesus' teaching that harmonizes these two seemingly contradictory perspectives shows up in Matthew 18, when he says that if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Here's where Keller gets inward and outward forgiveness. So he says inward forgiveness, you need to forgive this guy either way, but if if he listens, then there can be reconciliation and that forgiveness can go to the next stage. The inward aspect of forgiveness is required. The outward aspect, reconciliation and restoration, depends on the response of the offender. The victim of the wrongdoing in either case must forgive inwardly, while reconciliation depends on whether the perpetrator recognizes his wrongdoing and repents or does not. Some have called one of these attitudinal forgiveness, having to do with your attitude, and the other reconciled forgiveness. Keller goes on to affirm that one could say the first must always happen, the second may happen, but is not always possible. Attitudinal forgiveness, inner forgiveness, can forgive without reconciliation. But reconciliation cannot happen unless attitudinal forgiveness has already occurred. So in other words, inner forgiveness is the prerequisite to pursuing outer forgiveness and reconciliation. Um, if you haven't forgiven somebody in your heart, when you go to reconcile with them, you won't really pursue reconciliation. You'll go with a transactional model forgiveness in mind where you're saying, I'm willing to offer you forgiveness if you change something about you. Um, inner forgiveness is a prerequisite to outer forgiveness. Inner forgiveness is not optional, even when outer forgiveness is not achievable. Keller identifies two lessons. First, Christian forgiveness is never simply individualistic, concerned only with an inner healing of the heart. Um, God is concerned for the healing of the relationship as well. So we can't stop by saying, well, I've forgiven someone inwardly, and now there is no reason for me to ever think about them again. You haven't really forgiven them in, uh, inwardly. Um, it, you must take God's concern for a restored relationship seriously. However, the actualization of reconciliation requires a participatory response, true repentance from the offending party. And this is what I was trying to say when it comes to God's forgiveness of the world in Jesus' death on the cross. 
God truly offers forgiveness. He truly forgives. But the actualization of reconciliation requires a participatory response or true repentance from the offending party. Um, If the offending party never comes back to God or comes back to the person they've offended, the forgiveness is never maximized. It's never all that it could be. Second, Christian forgiveness never undermines the pursuit of justice, but promotes it. Keller writes, inward forgiveness changes the attitude of the heart from a desire for the wrongdoer's pain to a desire for his or her good. That is the essence of inward forgiveness. And it means going from antipathy to love. Love is genuinely willing someone's good, putting one's happiness into the happiness of others so that their thriving brings you joy. Love then is the essence of granting forgiveness. But that is also the essence of doing justice. Why should a Christian seek justice? Because injustice grieves God, the God we love. It mars the creation we love. It harms the people we love. And here's the point. And it harms the wrongdoer whom we should love and not hate. What is seeking justice? It is to speak the truth in love and not to shield people from the consequences of their actions. Not to be outraged and not to seek justice may in such cases be evidence not of gentleness and love, but of a failure to love. So sometimes we think when, we're, uh, when, when we decide not to pursue justice or not to um, help someone come out of their sin, we might think we're being gentle and loving to them when actually we're being quite unloving to them. Um, you know, I've used this illustration before, but if your kid is about to grab the stove burner, what's loving to them is not to pretend as if they aren't doing something harmful to themselves. Sin is harmful to to ourselves and to others, so we shouldn't overlook it. Uh, The pursuit of justice, and this is important, predicated on inward forgiveness, is an expression of love in keeping with God's concept, or keeping with the concepts of God's exercise of justice as an expression of his love. Um, And that requires discernment. But we need to love our neighbors enough to want them to be freed from the evil at work in their hearts. That's what confrontation is at its best. And in that way, we can pursue both justice and forgiveness while renouncing revenge in the pursuit of justice. We pursue justice for the good of that person, for the good of all, not for your emotional satisfaction. And sometimes we hide behind um, the outward thing being the same, justice looking the same, whether it's vengeance or justice, but really we just want our emotional satisfaction. Um, Keller gives three case studies. I'll just hit them really quickly and how this distinction between internal and external forgiveness helps us. First, when an offender breaks the law, when, when someone's offended you, sinned against you and they've broken the law, you don't overlook it. You don't not pursue justice. You pursue justice and you forgive them. You can forgive the person in your heart and still insist that the person pay the penalty for their criminal action. Um, so when we're dealing with people who have been sexually abused, they do need to come to forgive, and they need to pursue justice. They, they need to press charges for the good of the, the offender, for the good of potential victims. I mean, this, this is the whole thing, justice and forgiveness together. Um, when a husband is beating his wife, that wife needs to forgive him and call the police. Um, 
These are, do you see how this would grate against, like nobody in secular society would be happy about this. Um, people from a thousand years ago would think, no, husbands shouldn't be allowed to beat their wives. This should be just fine and she needs to be okay with it. People today would say she should never forgive him um, and only pursue vengeance against him. Jesus charts a different course. Uh, philosophers call this diagonalization, where we see what's maybe right in both things, but um, justice and forgiveness go hand in hand. Um, so when someone's broken the law, you pursue justice and you forgive. Uh, what about when the, ref the offender refuses to meet or the offender continues to forgive? Um, internal forgiveness means you're not handcuffed by their action. You, you don't, you, it's not dependent on them for you to forgive. You can still forgive. You can pray for them and for reconciliation, even as you give the matter over to God, knowing that God doesn't bring all things into harmony and healing and peace in this life. God is a lot more patient at bringing about reconciliation than we are. We like to force an issue and just fix the problem, or at least I do. But the fact that God has allowed 2,000 years to pass since Jesus died for us means that he's patient when it comes for, to reconciliation. And we ought to be patient as well. God calls his people to long-suffering, a long forbearance in which internal forgiveness is proved over time as it is sustained, especially in the absence of the reward of reconciliation. So many times when we need to forgive, it's with people who we don't have the ability to meet or who refuse to meet or who continue to offend, but we can still forgive internally. Third, what if the offender is dead? Um, this, this happens often. What if the person who hurt you so deeply is no longer alive? Again, you're not helpless. While reconciliation is the most desirable and healing outcome, it's, if it's not possible to be reconciled, there's a way to keep your heart from being so damaged that you cannot grow or enjoy life. That is the way of internal forgiveness. Now, you may, you know, I think there, there's a right place for Christian counseling and therapy and God in his grace allows us to learn about how the brain and trauma works such that you might need to find some help to know how to deal with that hardship and you can find healing in that way. But I'd say ultimately it starts with internal forgiveness, even if that person is no longer alive. Um, in the small print, I give a little bit of an illustration from a book that I read recently called A History of the Amish, where a, a gunman went in and killed a bunch of people in an Amish community and then killed himself. And then that Amish community um, gave a financial gift to this guy's mom to help pay for his funeral. And the highest percentage of attendees at his funeral were, were people from that Amish community because they learned to forgive internally. And remarkably, they found a way to demonstrate the fruit of that forgiveness, um, looking at that mom not as a perpetrator, but as another victim of this guy's murder-suicide. And I think when we can learn to internally forgive, we, we see the other people who are affected by the person who's hurt us. And we can part of the way we show our internal forgiveness is reaching out and um, providing help and healing for other people who were hurt in similar ways. Um, any quick comment? Well, you know what? We're done. <laughs> we're at the end of our class. Jesus goes on to give two additional directives. Uh, he says that you should never retaliate toward your enemies but you need to go beyond mere non-retaliation to genuinely loving them. I would encourage you to read that final section. It's, it's fairly brief, but that's the revolutionary to command. It's 
that we don't forgive just the people that we like. We forgive even our enemies. Uh, your brother-in-law asked a good question in our first lesson. Does, do we need to forgive non-Christians? Jesus' love for enemy directives means that his forgiveness commands includes them as well. All right, we've got to end here. I'm happy to talk, but I'd encourage you to read those, that final section. Thanks.